On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Austin. And Austin was in an abusive relationship with a minimizing Mr. Wright. It's a story of caretaking, burdens, perfectionism, nitpicking, breadcrumbs, and physical abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Austin. How are you? Hi, Brandon. I'm good. Thanks for having me today. Well, thank you for being here. And if you want to be a guest like Austin is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today we are going to hear Austin's story and a big content warning on this story as we do discuss physical abuse in this episode. And I really just want to thank Austin for being here with us today and telling her story. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Austin, the floor is now yours. All right, Brandon. So if we kind of go back in time a little bit, um, many moons ago before the relationship, um, my childhood was normal to me at the time, but in, you know, further analysis, there's things that kind of pop in and make you realize, okay, you know, that's why I do that, or that makes sense. So if I could describe myself as a kid, um, even starting there is difficult. I've never really seen myself as a kid. Um, you know, it's, I wasn't the no worries, joyful, invincible kid. I had a lot of responsibilities being the oldest of four kids. And I felt that that was a really heavy responsibility to have. So I always had really rare and interesting, weird stuff happen to me that happened to nobody else. Um, that gave me a really interesting sense of humor, but made me very different. Being the oldest and having that responsibility and being the good kid was my programming. And there was no editing of that programming. It was just, that's, that's the rules. You know, those are the rules that I had to follow. I remember hearing the word deserve. And even when I was five years old, that made me cringe. I just, I didn't, I didn't like being the center of attention, but at the same time felt like I needed to be the best at everything. So it was a weird, a weird battle. So I I was wrapped up in this caretaker role that, you know, kind of was my entire identity really early on, um, which I think made things easy for me. I never had to question what I needed to do or who I needed to be. I woke up and, you know, what did we need to take care of today? What did we need to do today? So I felt like I was conditioned for that role, but I wasn't taught how to be that person. 
even though I was so confident, I, I had no guidance for, you know, if I was doing any of this right. So it was, it was a learn as you go. Um, and I knew when I messed up, when I got in trouble or felt embarrassed. So that was really my, my sliding scale that determined if I was doing a good job or not. I think to set the foundation for all of that, I have to talk about my parents and their background. They were born into an interesting church that claimed to be Christians, but they claimed to be the real Christians, you know, the one true church. Um, I can only explain this as like a weird, strange checks mix of a few different religions and they picked and used different things and kind of made their own little concoction of what they were. They referred to members as the special ones. And only members of these, you know, this church was going to be whisked away to safety. You know, when the end of the world came, it was very extreme apocalyptic fear based religion. And so um, I remember my mom telling me about one of the end of the worlds that they had to prepare for when she was younger um, and how terrified she was. I remember feeling scared when she was telling me the story because of, you know, just how indoctrinated these beliefs were was it was really bizarre. I think every cult or environment like that has its own currency. And for me, it seemed like their currency was guilt and fear. Um, but no holidays, Christmas, Halloween, Easter, that was considered pagan. Uh, no celebrations of the self. So no birthdays. Um, couldn't go out Friday or Saturday nights after sunset. So if you had a job that required you to, you were expected to leave that job. Um, no doctors, medicine. I mean, I'm talking everything from Tylenol and Advil to anything the doctor would uh, prescribe you. No vaccines, blood transfusions, transplants, no foreign objects in the body. Um, no pork, shellfish, birth control, tattoos. You had to go to a specific college that was owned by um, these people in the church and get a theological degree. Uh, you had to marry within the church, socialize within the church, but you were not allowed to talk about your beliefs to what they considered to be outsiders. You could only discuss church stuff with church members. So they were very secluded in their own little world. And thankfully they left that church after I was born. But it's interesting because I think even to today, the stuff from all of that still follows me in my family every single day. So it's, it's interesting. Um, because my parents left, that meant so did my extended family who still were involved in the church. So I didn't grow up with any extended family. Um, there were weird conversations. Anytime I came across those extended family, you know, I remember being 10 or 12 years old and my cousin's like, you know, it's really sucks that you're going to hell. And it was just, I had to just kind of take it and say, yep, I guess it sucks. But a lot of those beliefs um, continued on in my childhood and young adulthood, I think, because my parents just didn't know anything else. Um, they certainly wanted very different things for us growing up. Change only happened when I would initiate that. So I would ask my parents, you know, why, why do we have to stay in the house with all the lights off when it's Halloween and everybody's getting candy. You know, it's, that's weird. My parents would go, yeah, that is kind of weird. We should, 
try to start doing that. Um, or Christmas, you know, I started getting afraid for my younger siblings, um, having to answer the questions that I was answering from other kids, you know, coming back from winter break, you know, what'd you get for Christmas? And I kind of had to be like, well, nothing or well, I don't celebrate Christmas and just being looked at like you were this alien child that didn't do any normal, you know, to me at the time, normal kid things. Um, but my parents were really great about making the change. Um, when we brought it up or asked about it, um, our first Christmas was seriously something out of a magazine. I mean, they went all out, but they really tried. Um, and I appreciated, um, that a lot from them. I didn't blame them for what they didn't know. Um, none of us did really. We were always welcome to ask questions if we had any about how they were raised in that church. Um, but they wanted us to have our own beliefs in growing up. So that was, there was a lot of freedom in what and how they kind of set that up for us based on what they went through. Um, my parents lived really big lives. They were very attractive people. My mom was tan, beautiful, wore a suit and heels every day, worked in Beverly Hills. I mean, everybody wanted to be her. Everybody loved her. She was nice, um, put on the best events and dinner parties. And I mean, she was like a superstar to me. Um, she never missed a day of work that I knew of. Uh, she was never sick. So I mean, she was, she was who I wanted to be when I grew up. And my dad was the funny, happy, classic, fun dad, um, you know, took us out for ice cream after school. And he was always so excited when he got home to see us. And it was nice. Um, so young me, after all of that, um, could be described as a big feeler. I was very focused on people and the energy and environment around me from a very, very young age. My, I had a very heavy, heavy conscience. Um, when I learned what the golden rule was, I lived my life by that rule. Uh, I had a clear focus on what was right and what was wrong. I couldn't lie without getting physically ill. I was just so scared of messing up. Um, I felt a lot of guilt, but I countered with that. Well, this is making me a good person. So it, it's not so bad. I just, I had to be the good kid at all times. I never had a rebellious streak or tested boundaries with my parents. Everything they said was gospel and I followed it. So, yeah, I mean, everything was kind of centered around just avoiding disappointing anybody. I didn't want anyone thinking I was anything except a good person being called out of character or something that I wasn't. I made friends with everyone. I felt like when I was at the grocery store, I had to smile at everybody and acknowledge everybody's existence. I just, I felt like when I saw people that was, it was like a gift. Just, I mean, even strangers were like a gift and I, I had to connect with them. I felt a very strong need to connect with everybody around me. Um, especially people that were in pain or in some sort of discomfort. I was very drawn to them. Did you have anxiety about it or did you just see it as this is a gift? Oh, when I was a kid, it was, I didn't know what anxiety was, right? So 
that was very much a gift for me. And my parents saw it as a gift, you know, here's my kid, you know, she has to smile at everybody and she's really smart and she's reading at an early age. And so I was like, yeah, that's, that's what made me special. But it also was hard to live up to that every day later on. But er, I mean, when I was a kid, that's just who I was. My mom used to tell the story about how I gave away my toys and shoes and clothes from before I was in preschool. And she didn't understand why I would do that um, because she didn't teach me to do that. So it just never felt good to have something that somebody else didn't, whether that was my own happiness. It didn't feel good to have if somebody else didn't have it. And that that's just who I was. You know, even if I had to take on their discomfort myself, it was better that I had it because I could handle it. And it meant that they didn't have it. And that was the only way I could get relief was if I could take that away, if it was pain, or I could give happiness to them or give something tangible to them to make it feel better. Because that was the only way I was, I was going to feel better. I couldn't sleep if I, if I didn't do that. So you wrote me that you had a body issues and things about uh, how people saw you and that you felt different from everyone. So I guess tell us a little bit about that and you know how this kind of manifested uh, in you at this moment as a child, but you know, how this could have also hindered you maybe going forward too. I had very distorted views on what I thought people thought of me. So I felt like my insides didn't match my outsides and I had a lot to, to prove to people. It, it was always about proving who I was. I felt like they didn't really understand me. So I had to go above and beyond to explain to them. I felt so different from everybody and how I felt and how I looked, um, which turned into really distorted views of my body, even though I was overweight as a child up until um, later in life as well. But throughout childhood, I just thought people saw me as just this fat kid who didn't look like family. I mean, my siblings were blonde and blue and green eyed and thin and didn't experience any health issues or felt the feelings that I was feeling. So I just, I felt out of place. Um, and so in order to feel in place, I just, I wanted to be funny or really smart or really good at something. Um, you know, I, what people said to me or what I heard about me held so much weight um, mentally on me. Um, I had health issues that ended up kind of coming up. And anytime I complained about it, whether it was weird pains that I really didn't know how to explain because I was a kid, I just felt, you know, icky or, or sick. It seemed like it was an inconvenience you know, because, oh, that meant my parents had to miss work and take me to the doctor and nobody really had time for that. And none of my other siblings were 
ever getting sick. So why was I the only one getting sick all the time? Um, and it only took one experience for, you know, a wall or a boundary to come up and for me to edit myself. So if complaining about being sick was an inconvenience and was wrong, where I felt it was wrong, I never did it again. It didn't take it, you know, doing two or three times. It was, it was one and done. So I was in school and I would be so sick sometimes that the teacher would send me to the nurse's office. And I remember being so terrified of them calling my parents because I didn't want them to be upset with me that they were called and had to miss work that I would put the thermometer on a different side of my mouth. I wouldn't put it under my tongue. I didn't want it to come back and show that I had a fever or that I was sick. I mean, I did everything to make sure that I wasn't a burden to my parents or to anybody or that my friends saw me as, you know, the weird sick kid. So all of those things made me feel like I had failures or there was, those things were just mistakes about me that I had to fix. You know, I didn't see anybody else going through what I was going through. So these things just must be wrong and I have to get rid of them or I have to make sure nobody sees them. So you're around nine or 10 at this point. And, you know, this is a relationship story. And you are already at this age cooked. And I say that because you are self-minimizing, you know, your feelings, all of your needs you're doing already at this age. You're, you're performative in the sense of being the sad clown and doing that to not be a burden or to earn your keep, let's say, you know, you're, you're doing these things to earn your keep and you don't want to be a burden to other people and you're giving yourself away completely at this age. There's no, even though no one's technically forcing you to do what's going on, you have already been put into this prison of uh, taking up as little space for yourself as possible. And you eventually will get there. But as you get older, with that already instilled at you by this age, you know, in the wrong hands that is just a recipe for having someone really wreak havoc over all parts of your life. And honestly, until I put it into words here, I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, I'm, I might as well write the book on like, you know, how to end up in this situation, but it didn't happen until just recently. So up until this time, I mean, I thought I was just doing thought I was just being me, thought that's what being me meant. So eventually you make a big move across the country for your dad's new job. Mm -hmm. So tell us about this. 
So right when things kind of start settling in, we had to make this really big move across the country for my dad's new job. Uh, this kind of, for me, was a really big turning point in our family dynamic. Um, because really a month after moving, my dad's company goes out of business. Um, my grandmother that I didn't really know, my dad's mother dies. And my parents started really kind of losing their grip on their issues with addiction and with alcohol. So having that outlook of being the caretaker and being preventative and so being this person, I feel was really necessary to be um, in order to keep everybody safe, right? Especially when you have parents that are kind of losing their grip on their addiction with alcohol and the environment was getting really unstable and unpredictable and nobody really, even myself really felt confident navigating. We just had to do what we had to do. Right. So I started seeing my parents a little bit differently. Um, they were no longer really parents. They were kind of moved down to the place where my siblings were. They were people I had to take care of, you know? So while I was feeling all the feelings and my siblings didn't really understand that, you know, my parents were falling apart, it left a really big hole in, I guess it created a lot of loneliness for me, really. Um, so from here, you ended up having two relationships. One of them was for five years, and they were both good relationships, but you ended up moving in different directions with both of them. And you started a new career from here. You were independent. You were also still helping out your family financially. And then, unfortunately, your mom gets sick. She's diagnosed with a terminal illness, and she goes into hospice care. And you're still helping out in all these different ways uh, with the hospice care, with all aspects of your family. And you start to feel down, but you're also at a point where you want to be uplifted. And one day you go on a dating app. So tell us what happens from here. Um, I match with this very attractive person who is smart and is a PhD candidate at a top school here. He is from an exotic country and I've always been attracted to people who are very different from me and speak different languages. I mean, everything on paper looked incredible. I mean, he's literally a rocket scientist and what person doesn't, you know, couldn't be proud of that. So we start talking pretty quickly. I was at my family's house at the time when the messages started coming through and it was Christmas day actually. And I get a notification on my phone. It's a message from him and it says, Hey, future lover. And I thought, Yuck. That is horrible and disgusting and also a little bit hilarious. And my sister's sitting next to me and we're having a really good laugh about, man, this, you know, this guy looks so great. And like, turns out he's just a total dud. And we didn't, we hadn't even had a conversation, but you know, I mean, there was a red flag before I even knew who he was. Um, there couldn't be a bigger red flag as far as I was concerned. 
Um, but for whatever reason, it was Christmas and I wanted to continue having a good laugh with my sister. So we continued on with the conversation and I said, um, well, Hey, yeah. What, what makes you think that? Like, what makes you so confident? And he said, well, maybe not. That depends on if you have any of my weaknesses. And me and my sister just look at each other and just start gagging. I mean, we are laughing so hard at this point, so much so that my sister takes a screenshot and sends it to her boyfriend. And we're all just laughing. And this whole thing kind of ends up being a joke. And so I respond and say, what might those be? And then I get a very sexually graphic, vulgar response about all these very specific characteristics that he likes about women um, and what he likes to do with those physical characteristics of women. That's when I kind of shut the phone down and just was like, okay, this, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, I'm not going to continue. So I wrap up hanging out with my sister. I go and drive home. And on my drive home, I'm thinking, was I too hasty? You know, he's from a different country and I know he speaks a different language and maybe he wasn't intending to come across the way that he came across to me. So maybe it wouldn't hurt to kind of just poke back in there and give him another chance. So we talked for a couple days to pass his surface level. We start getting a little bit deeper and about a week into it, we exchange numbers and are just talking to each other all day long and we plan our first date. And, you know, with COVID and everything and, and the pandemic, we met up at my house for the first date. Um, there was no, you know, going to a restaurant or, you know, doing any sort of outdoor activity. He drove an hour to be at my house. Um, I planned on cooking. He brought over my favorite wine and favorite this, that, and the other. He was going to make dessert. And he walks in and he's happy and smiling and has all these gifts and jumps in immediately and starts making the dessert and he's cleaning and doing the dishes. I mean, I was absolutely blown away. I was like, oh man, thank goodness I gave this guy another chance. I almost let him walk out the door. I mean, he's emotional, attractive, smart, thoughtful, giving. I let him in on what was happening with my mom and my family. And he had an emotional moment with me, um, actual tears. And he started crying, not sobbing, but he was crying. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, he, he, he gets me, you know, <laughs> he understands me. And so I thought, well, this is awesome. You know, couldn't have come at a better time. I'm ready to start feeling happy and relationships were a big source of happiness for me. So I was, I was really ready for it. So we had a great night and we're dancing to music. We eat really good food and we're talking and he ends up staying the night. And the next morning I kind of wait to gauge, you know, what his feelings might be. Cause I think that's the moment of truth for a lot of people when, you know, you have a night like that. Was it real? Was it the alcohol? You know, so we wake up, everything's fine. He's happy. But all of a sudden, after I check my phone, he lets out this really big sigh, almost sarcastically, um, just seems like he's upset about something or he's obviously wanting me to ask him what that sigh is about. So he goes into this conversation saying he can't trust women. I mean, we had this really great night, but I bet you're talking to a bunch of other people on apps and you don't even have to try to get attention. And, um, 
I thought it's not at all who I am. Um, but if it would make you feel better, you know, I pulled out my phone and deleted the app right in front of him. I mean, I, I didn't have that expectation of him, but if that provided him some sort of safety, I was happy to give that to him. I, I only had one app. I only matched with one person. Um, I can't really divide my attention to a bunch of different people. It's just not, that's not what I want to do. And it's not really something I can do. So that one night and nice morning turned into three really nice nights and three really nice mornings. So he stayed the entire long weekend. Um, the love bombing was in full force. He was saying he never sent novels of texts or talked to anybody in this way before in his life. Um, he was calling me, you know, pet names in French. And, you know, I mean, that that sent anything to make a, a girl drool. I just was like, wow, you know, this is a dream. It really felt like this wasn't real, especially in the midst of everything that was that had happened with my family and what my routine had been for so long. So just to check in one more time, I kind of brought up the situation again with my family and my responsibilities. I said, you know, just to make sure he understands that this is priority one for me. And I want to make sure that he, if he's really serious about kind of taking this further, he needs to understand, you know, where my footing is. He had no problem with it. The messages kept coming. We made more plans to see each other. Um, seemed like he was sticking around. So he spent that one weekend at my place. And then moving forward, it was really about me coming to his place. He actually never came back to my house after that. If I wanted to see him, it had to be over at his apartment. Um, I remember being there for the first time and thinking it was just spotless clean. His closet was almost scary. Um, and how he folded his socks and t-shirts were color coordinated and all in the same direction and organized by fabric. I mean, it was like, it was really bizarre. I took a picture of it and sent it to my friends. I was like, can you believe this is a guy's closet? I mean, he just was, you know, adding it to the list, more things to really like about him. And I spent a couple days there sporadically. I couldn't really spend a long weekend like we normally did, but um, there was one weekend where I did have an extra day. And after that, he was like, well, you know, what do you have to do? You know, don't, can't you work remotely with everything? You know, do you want to just stay here? Like you kind of make my days go by a little bit better. And I felt wanted and he also made my days a little bit better. So I thought, yeah, I mean, it's a little farther from my mom, but I'll figure out a way to make it work. So I, I accepted that and was more than willing to, to stay. I thought it was, I thought it was great. I asked if I could bring my dog. He was more than willing to have my dog with them too. And I kind of just started spending a lot of my time there. Um, all the work I could do was remote. If I needed to go see my parents, I could just go drive over there. So little things here and there started coming up. And at, on the surface, for me, it was something that, again, it, it made me feel needed. He wanted help with some schoolwork. There was a course that was on ethics, ironically enough. 
and he needed help writing those essays for that course. I thought when he asked for help, it meant, you know, proofreading or editing a paper that he had already written, but it ended up being I wrote all six essays for that course for him. And there wasn't a lot of appreciation that came with that. It was just kind of like, you know, cool, you, you did what I asked you to do. And I was like, okay, that's a little weird, but nothing out of the ordinary from what I've been doing up until this time. I'm used to taking care of people. If that's something, a service I can provide, more than willing to do it. Um, I started cooking these really extravagant meals every night. And I mean, every night, I'm not talking every once in a while, every single night I made this five-star meal um, because we were spending all of our time indoors. There wasn't date nights. Um, there wasn't going out and, and socializing or doing those sorts of things. And that didn't feel weird either, given that it was COVID. Um, so none of this was kind of throwing red flags that probably would have been if I was in any other normal situation, right? So with the cooking and I would bring over gifts and surprises, I didn't seem like I was, I didn't feel like I was getting a reaction out of him. Like it wasn't making him really happy. It wasn't making him upset. So I didn't really understand. I was like, well, I guess I'm not doing anything wrong, but I don't really know if I'm doing anything right either. That started to make me feel a little bit uneasy. Um, and just made me kind of want to start doing more things and trying to figure out, okay, what's the thing that's going to make him really happy. I got to amp it up a little bit. Right. So that anxiety and uneasiness tends to default me to push harder, you know, work harder, try harder. And that's kind of when the devaluation started happening. Um, so I'm helping him with this assignment and we're submitting everything. And I see this notification pop up on his computer. I mean, I'm sitting right there on his computer. I wasn't looking for it. And it's a notification from a dating app. So I called it out. I played it off in a lighthearted, joking way, saying like, oh, you know, I see how it is. You know, I hope she's fun or something like that. I mean, I just, I played it off. I didn't want him to think I was putting pressure on him. Right. And he just, oh, that's spam. I don't, I don't use dating apps anymore. I don't really care about them. And we moved on to something else. So of course that plants a huge seed in my mind, you know, that doesn't go away. And I start thinking about that story that he, he told me of, how he couldn't trust women because of all of the dating apps and talking to a bunch of different people. And I thought, well, that's a little hypocritical, isn't it? So we move on, we have dinner, we go to bed. He falls asleep. I mean, in his clothes with his phone on his chest and his phone's still on. And another notification pops up on his phone from a different app while I was there. And he was messaging somebody. And I just kind of sat there and was like, okay, well, you know, we're still really early on in this relationship and it's still really weird considering the feelings that he expressed with me about how he felt about apps. But, you know, I don't feel like I had a, had a ledge or a leg to, to stand on because it was just it was too early. We weren't in a committed relationship. I couldn't really have that conversation with him. So... I felt like the next morning is when things kind of changed. Um, even though I approached the, the fact that I had seen that notification on his computer in a very lighthearted and joking way, it felt like a switch went off in, in his head. And he was, he went from being content to just 
zero emotion. Just, it got really weird um, and entered in nitpicking and criticism and perfectionism and gaslighting. Everything just swarmed in. And this is still very, very early on in the relationship. Um, didn't make a lot of sense to me because he was still wanting to keep me around and hang out with me. And I'm thinking like, if you're treating somebody like this, why do you want me around? Right. It doesn't seem like I'm really giving you anything. So I started to get asked these questions and they were phrased in such a perfect way that they came across as innocent, right? It didn't sound negative. If anybody else was listening, they wouldn't know the, the manipulation that was really at the root of it, right? So it would be something like, why do you do your makeup like that every morning? Why do you use a whole paper towel instead of ripping it in half? Or why do you put the cups in the dishwasher like that? Um, or if I was driving, it was, why do you turn your blinker on so early? You know, this way's faster. Why don't, why don't we just take this way? I mean, it, it got to the point where he was asking me, you know, why do you use that much toilet paper? You know, how much toilet paper do you use? You should probably use like three squares. And I'm thinking, I thought it was a joke because isn't there a phrase? Like, I don't tell you how to wipe your rear end. You know, this expression turned into, you know, real life. It was just, it was really bizarre. And that made me question everything that I was doing. And it was these tiny little things that had never mattered to anybody ever before. It really activated a pretty serious anxiety uh, within me. And so I had to start kind of walking on eggshells a little bit in order to, because I didn't want to hear those questions anymore, right? So I was like, okay, well, I need to start doing things the way that he wants to see him and that will get rid of the questioning. But at the same time, the other side of my brain is like, you know, I've survived pretty well this long. I, I think the way I'm doing things, there's, there's nothing wrong with the way that I'm doing things. But it just, it made me really anxious. And so I brought it up when the questioning started to get a little bit persistent in terms of every little thing that I did, how I drank my coffee. I mean, you name it. It just was every little thing had to have his two cents and it started to kind of piss me off. I mean, I didn't understand why everything needed to be this conversation. So I said, why are you asking me these things as if you're interested in the answer, if it's not really going to warrant a response? I mean, if he, when he asked me, I said, when you ask me why I do my makeup and I say, well, it's, it's my me time. It's, it's what I like to do in the morning. It's, it's what makes me happy. You know, I, I don't understand why I need to defend that or come up with some crazy explanation. And he says, well, you know, I just want to understand if you're thinking about what you're doing or if you're just doing things just to do it. Um, I don't think a reason to do something just because you like it is a reason to do anything. I want to know if you have a efficient, you know, scientific explanation for the way that you're doing things. You know, I, I just don't understand how you could really just live like that. I had no words, really. I just, I really didn't understand. This guy was accusing me of floating through life without thinking about anything and about very little things. It wasn't about anything psychologically deep or, you know, 
philosophical or, you know, really meaningful conversations. It was, you know, about my driving being too fast or too slow or the timing of when I turn my blinker on. He was never asking questions like that about my family. You know, there wasn't any interest in how my family's doing or how I'm doing or what I did during the day. It was about the little things that I was doing. And that to me was very unfamiliar. I couldn't defend myself because the more I defended myself, the worse it got because I was basically feeding into his rationalization that I don't think about the things that I'm doing. So I just, I didn't know how to answer it to satisfy what, whatever he wanted. So I continued to walk around eggshells just to avoid that line of questioning. So he's being very much a Mr. Right on the abuser type list. Does he find fault in anything he does himself or is everything he does perfect? So when it came to his feelings about fault and blame, I started to notice that everything had to have fault or blame on somebody or something. And it was somebody or something other than him. I mean, I never viewed things in a way that was like his fault, her fault, or that person's to blame, because that was a huge anxiety of mine. I didn't want to be blamed for anything or the the cause of something, right? But this is how he organized his life. And this is kind of how gaslighting entered in, right? Because if everything has to have a blame, he couldn't be the root of it. And if ever I called something out, or asked him about something that even remotely or hinted that it involved him, it flipped around into a conversation having nothing to do with the point that I was bringing up, right? So for example, the apps, um, I brought it up a few times and asked, you know, hey, are you still using apps? You know, I knew the answer from what I was seeing. So it was pretty rhetorical for me, but I was curious what his answer was. And he said, I already told you I don't use them. I don't care about them. I don't know why you keep asking me. I don't know why you don't trust me. I mean, this is ridiculous. And it ended up turning into an argument. And I didn't understand how somebody could look me in the eye and lie and feel nothing about it. This was, and that's when I figured out that this was this guy's reality, right? He believed so much that something was not his fault or, I was to blame, especially because that was kind of, you know, the theme of this relationship was I was the cause of everything. I had to do everything in my power not to activate that anger moving forward, which made it hard to have conversations like, you know, where's this relationship going? Um, But I was very much aware that the love bombing phase was over. But then he would kind of pull me right back right before I tipped over the ledge with something that was really cute or he would laugh about a joke that I made really hard and I'm thinking oh that's great that's that's all I wanted I mean that that meant the whole world to me Uh, we would go to the store and we were on to talking about some kind of plan that we were going to do when we got home and he said yeah I can't wait to get back home to our apartment I'm thinking our apartment he got so red faced, but he was embarrassed and he was smiling. He looked happy. I mean, he genuinely looked like it was a good mistake. 
that he had said that. Um, and that was all I needed to, to feel like, okay, he still wants me around. Right. So those little wins, no matter how little were monumentous and kind of erased everything bad that had happened before. And I felt like we could start over. I mean, it took very, very little, uh, to pull me back in that naturally segued into us having a conversation about moving in with each other about six months into this quote unquote relationship, whatever you want to call it, since we didn't define it as anything at this point, even though we were acting like boyfriend and girlfriend and he was exclusive to me and he knew that, but I had no clue what his thoughts were. And if I was just along for the ride and this was a fun thing, then it's better than not having anybody at all, you know, with everything that was happening in my life. But, you know, looking for this new apartment, it was me doing the tours. It was me filling out the paperwork. Um, I tried to get him involved. I wanted him to know, you know, what, what areas are you interested in? What kind of apartment do you want? What furniture do you want to be in there? I mean, he had no interest in any kind of input on what the apartment should be. It just that to him, I guess, wasn't important, but I wanted it to feel like it was our home, not just a place where both of us are living. So I go home and I'm packing up all my stuff. He didn't come to help me pack anything, but that was fine. I've always lived by myself. So I was used to moving things by myself. Um, my sister has a truck, so she always knows the drill where she would come over to, to my house and take all the garbage or the things I was donating. Um, she was nine months pregnant at the time. So her and her husband came and they were always more than willing to help. Um, so she's tossing everything in the truck and he pulls up and I was kind of surprised to see him. I was like, you know, Hey, thanks for coming. He's like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm here to help. And so he walks into the house and plops himself on the couch and starts scrolling through Instagram and TikTok and YouTube and just sits there. And this is the first time he's met any member of my family. And he says, hi. And goes and sits on the couch. I don't want my sister thinking I'm dating this bum. And that's exactly what picture he's painting. Um, so I go, I go in there. I'm like, hey, like, that's, that's my sister kind of doing most of the work right now. Like, I thought you were here to help. And he's like, are you serious? I am helping. I'm taking a break. And my sister and her husband are outside, like, hearing this. And I just played it off as a joke. You know, four months later, when it's, when it's his turn to move, he hires no movers and expects my car to be the one transporting his stuff to the new place. And I don't even know how that even happened. I mean, I guess he's so good at kind of naturally getting me to do those sorts of things, but I'm packing most of his stuff, his stuff up, his glassware. Um, I offered him to use my storage unit. So I coordinated a truck to take the stuff from his apartment to my storage unit that I was paying for. And I pay all of the deposits and fees and also the first four months of rent on my own. Considering his lease was overlapping this one, I said, yeah, I'll go ahead and, you know, bite it. And that was fine. But things are not feeling very good at this point. So it, it was a cycle of feeling useless and stupid and getting put down. And when you're already in this heightened state of distress, constant 
persistent distress, it's hard to tell when a new piece comes in and which one's causing the stress, right? I'm already stressed with the stuff going on with my mom. And now I've got this stress with, with him. I didn't know which one was which, so it didn't feel like much had really changed. So for the psychology of who you are, how you grew up, I said before that in the wrong hands that you have no chance. And this person is the perfect toxic match for you. You are essentially the uh, right part to fit uh, into their specific machine cycle. Oh, absolutely. Especially a person that doesn't want to change people. I accepted him for who he was. And a lot of people, you know, that's, that's a quick explanation of why people stay and, and I, I didn't feel like I had to fix him or change him. I said, this is who he is and this is how he acts. So that means he's not intentionally trying to hurt me. This is just who he is. So he consistently got the benefit of the doubt at every turn. Right. So I was able to flip everything that made me feel anxious into, all right, well, what do I have to do to adapt to this in order to move forward? It was on me to make the change, to change myself. It wasn't on me to figure out how to change him. I think I'd reached a a tolerance level at this point in terms of how things were going and Maybe not mentally, I I wasn't calling it out, but my body definitely gave me the big fat red light, right? Um, You know, I was was away from my family, not spending as much time with them. My energy was so depleted from not being able to win and and appease him. And I felt like the things that made me so successful up until now wasn't working. And that's all I knew how to do. And, And I felt like in my mind, I was going nuts. I felt separated from my body. That's how disconnected I was from from who I was, really, and from my role in the relationship. So I wasn't sleeping. Uh, I wasn't eating. But I was going to the gym twice a day because I had to release some form of stress somewhere. So this worry of, is he still using the apps? Um Am I saying the right or wrong thing? You know, what am I going to find, you know, next time I'm, I'm on his computer? I mean, it was just these, these thoughts were ice picks in my brain, right? So he's tightening up security protocols because, you know, he told me he has to change his passwords every once in a while. He's moving things around. He's changing certain things. Things start getting really, really bizarre. And he goes to school one day and needs me to send a email to his professor or something. And it was on his, his laptop that he had left at home. So he told me how to get on his computer and, you know, told me, well, the password's changed. So this is the password you have to use now. And I find the file that he needs and it's next to this folder that is not labeled, but full of pictures. I didn't know which one he wanted me to pick from um, because they both look exactly the same and they're both unnamed. So I opened this one and it is filled with, I, I couldn't tell you the number of women, but they were all different women 
and they were explicit pictures of what I could only guess was like every girl he had ever received a picture from put in there. It was like a, an archive of his conquests or something. I, I was completely shocked that he had this folder on his computer. And of course, I'm on the phone with him when I'm looking at this and I don't mention it. I bring it up when he gets home. I met with, I can't believe you violated, you know, my privacy and just flips it into, you know, you never trusted me. You know, this is none of your business. Why are you poking around on my computer? And this is why I changed all my passwords. And I, you know, I can't trust anybody. It was, it was this really big argument. It was something that never left my mind. I mean, I would go to bed and see those pictures in my head. It was, it was really awful. Um, I felt like I was kind of dissolving into something that really didn't feel human anymore. And the best way I can put it is like, I felt like a dog to him, but like a dog that served no purpose. And he had the food in the shelter and he gave it to me when I earned it. And once I got it, I better make sure that I don't eat it all or don't eat it too fast or don't scratch whatever he gave me or else I was going to be punished. I mean, he had complete control over me complete control. Um, and when things got heated to that level, when he was screaming at me and accusing me of, you know, violating his privacy, I don't tend to react to anger very well. And so I had to leave and go somewhere. And there was this place at the top of our building. Um, we lived in like a skyscraper downtown. So it was up really high. Um, I think I went up there four or five times over the course of two years. I would think about how to get out of this relationship and this situation, because clearly it's not doing very good things to me. Um, I would plan all these ways to do it, but it never quite really panned out. And I just thought, you know what, no matter what was happening in my life with my family, it seemed like anything I took control over, I wasn't winning in. Okay. I'm taking care of my mom and my family my whole life and she's dying. So that to me was a failure. Um, this relationship that I had gotten into, I'm thinking about leaving. And so that makes me a failure because I'm not able to somehow make this work. And that put me in a state of feeling like the only option was to find a permanent solution. So I went to a pretty dark place and that top of the building was pretty attractive to me a couple of times. I mean, he, he got me to, to that level of, of low of rock bottom, because I just, with everything else going on, if you put everything into perspective, there was no way out that felt good. That's the only way I can put it. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? And how do you deal with that alone? Because I was alone. Uh, nobody knew what was really going on in my relationship and nobody was taking care of my parents to the degree that I was. So it was really lonely. And that's when my health started taking a pretty big U-turn in the wrong direction. There was one day where my heart started racing out of control. I thought it was actually going to explode out of my chest. And I was like, man, that doesn't feel good. My eyes are blacking out. Didn't really know what happened after that because I woke up on the floor of the bathroom and my dog was barking and licking my face. And I'm thinking, okay, what just happened? 
my back really hurts, my head hurts, and I'm on the bathroom floor. I'm thinking, did I just pass out? I'm by myself. He's, you know, he's at school and or the office or wherever, you know, he goes during the day. And I'm thinking, okay, something not right just happened. And my heart is still racing. And so I'm I'm freaking out. And the first thing I think of is to call him. And I call him and he is, first of all, shocked that I would even think to call him when he's working at school. He's he's annoyed, like he he's busy, he's got work to do. Why am I calling him? And I said, like, I think I just passed out. Uh, my heart racing, my chest hurts. I'm not really sure what's going on. And he's extremely annoyed. He's like, what did you do to make that happen? You know, what, what are you worried about now? I just wanted to let you know, I was scared and you were the first person I wanted to call. Um, he said, well, just call your doctor. And he hangs up on me. So I call my doctor and I tell him what's going on. They tell me to monitor my heart rate for the, you know, a few times over the next 30 minutes. And it's still at about 200 plus. It's just not going down. So they tell me to go to the emergency room and they do a workup and find that the enzyme that's responsible for heart attacks was elevated. And they said, if you didn't just have a heart attack, it means you're probably going to have one pretty soon. I'm thinking, what? I'm 26, 27 years old. Like, what do you mean a heart attack? You know, I thought it was just a really bad panic attack or something. I mean, heart attack. When that happens, you have to stay at the hospital for a little while for observation. And so I had to text my sister because obviously I wasn't going to be coming to my mom's house to take care of her for whatever day that was. But I text my sister as if it was him texting her. Um, I basically texted my sister saying like, hey, Austin's in the hospital. Um, I just wanted to let you know, you know, I'm here, I'm worried about her, but everything's going to be okay. Cause I wanted my sister to know that I had somebody with me and I was fine and it wasn't a big deal because I knew he wasn't going to come to sit with me. So that didn't feel very good to do that, but it felt like that's what I needed to do to feel better, to make sure that nobody was, nobody else was worried about me. I had to have a heart monitor placed um, right kind of where my collarbone is underneath the skin, um, as well as externally. It was really ugly, but I had to wear that for the next six months. I lost close to 40 pounds. And I remember getting complimented on my body for the first time by him. He was like, you know, you're looking really good. I felt like death. I felt like I had no soul. I felt no energy. I felt like my skin was gray. I just felt sick. And I'm thinking he thinks I look good. I had one more fainting spell after that. And the fall was much worse. Um, I almost broke my arm and it was in front of him. Uh, nothing really triggered it. It was very random. Um, but I remember him cursing and rolling his eyes, you know, saying like, are you freaking serious right now? That was something he really liked to say a lot. So I had become the person I, to somebody that I never wanted to be, right? I was the burden. I was the cause of his pain. And I was just this annoying person, you know? And so I cried and really showed emotion in front of him for probably the first time. I mean, I had to let it out. There was, there was no choice. That crying, I started to realize later was 
what would trigger an escalation of abuse from him. So he comes over to where I'm crying because it's late and he has to go to bed and he's pissed off that I'm crying and disrupting his sleep. And somehow that instigated an argument from him and he's yelling at me while I'm crying. And I'm telling him, I'm like, can you please just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please just stop yelling at me. Just stop yelling at me. You know, why are you crying? Do you think this is going to make me care? I feel nothing when you cry. You know, you're not going to get me to care. I don't know what you think is going to happen by you crying, but that's not going to manipulate me. And I'm thinking like, I'd rather not cry, but this is the choice that I have right now with what I'm given. But he was saying, your crying does nothing for me. You know, I have so much work to do tomorrow. Like just basically just shut up, stop crying. And so I just laid on the floor and started to learn how to cry silently because I still had emotions to, to let go of, but, you know, I had to do it in such a way that wasn't going to get me yelled at. So another lesson to learn, I learned that crying was not okay. So I learned how to silent cry. And as long as I played along and didn't bring anything up, that problem wasn't going to resurface again, because if I bring up something that had happened before, it was considered nagging and I wasn't letting anything go. Um, I would try to ask for apologies when we would get in arguments like that the next morning. And that also turned into a fight because it would be, why do I have to apologize for something that made you react that way? And so it's just, I'm, I, I didn't know what to do. I was, I was utterly confused. So another big trigger of his anger would be when mistakes were made. Um, again, the blame shifting, there had to be a reason for why the mistake happened. Meaning if I broke a glass, it was because I was dumb enough to hold it that way, or I didn't put it in the place it needed to go. And so of course it was going to break. And so mistakes couldn't just be a human thing that all of us do now and again it was because I was dumb enough and didn't I don't think about the things that I do that would initiate that anger it didn't matter if it was big or small I started getting lectured anytime I made any sort of mistake that he caught wind of in order to survive I realized that I had to make my reality his reality that was the only way forward so in doing that, though, I somehow enabled the gaslighting to reach a new level of absurdity. Uh, we traveled to D.C. for um, something with his school. It was during my birthday. It's not necessarily what I wanted to do for my birthday, but it was the only way we were going to spend time together. So I said, yes, I would go. I said, if we could just have one meal where we could eat at my mom's favorite restaurant up there, I'd really love that. You know, I'd really love to do that for my birthday. We get up there and. The day of my birthday, after um, we had spent the day, you know, sightseeing and, and touring, I get a message from my friend from high school that I haven't talked to in a while who, you know, said, hey, happy birthday. And she said, sorry, this is kind of random, but isn't this the guy that you're dating? And she sends me a screenshot of her dating app chat. 
And it sure was. And I looked up the chat messages and it is a copy paste identical conversation to what he had sent me when we first met. The, hey, future lover, as long as you have my weaknesses, the vulgar, you know, I mean, exactly the same. The punctuation was the same. And he did this on my birthday. I don't know when he found the time to do it, but the screenshot showed the date of him doing it at some point during the day that we were spending together. And I thought, you know what? I finally have the golden ticket. I have the proof that's going to be irrefutable. It's in my hands. You can't argue with this. Like I finally am not crazy, right? I thought, and that's that's what came into my head. I was like, I'm really not crazy. He really was doing all these things that I've been so anxious about this entire time. So I brought it to him. Please explain this. And he looks at it and it's just kind of silent for a little while. And then I kind of see the, he would do this thing before getting really amped up and and freak out, but he would whistle. It was really creepy. Um, but he would just do this really low whistle. And that's when I knew there was going to be a boot in the ass somewhere. So I got lit up. I was accused of Photoshopping that I had created this screenshot that served my narrative that I had going on in my head. Um, he kept asking me where I got the tools to create this screenshot and make it look so real. And you know, what links I, I would go to to call him out on something that he would never do. And he doesn't have time to talk to anybody else with how busy he is and every excuse you can think of. But it ended up getting flipped around on me that I would do this unthinkable thing like Photoshop something and want to have an argument about something so horrible on my birthday. It was so bizarre that it was the thing that I needed to kind of wake up and be like, okay. So I went on my phone and I, bought a ticket to go to fly back home. It's like two or three in the morning at this point from all, all the arguing. And he doesn't think I'm going to leave. He's holding my wallet. He's not letting me pack up my stuff in the suitcase. He's not letting me leave. So I put all my clothes in a trash bag that I found in the place that we were staying. And I was like, whatever, I'm, I'm still leaving. <laughs> I have to leave with a garbage bag. I'm, I'm still going to leave. So I make it to the plane. Um, he's calling and texting me, asking me where I am. I told him the airport and he was like, there's no way you're at the airport. You know, just, just come back. I know you're just walking around the corner. Just come back. And I'm like, no, I'm at the airport. Send him a picture of, you know, the, the view out the window. And then I started getting these messages of everything I could have begged for to hear you know, the entire year that we had been together up until this point. I mean, he's so sad and he is so in love with me and doesn't want, like, please don't go. Like, I'm, I mean, things that I've never heard come out of his mouth before. I don't know why he waves that magic wand or whatever it is. And it's, it's like, I'm just back to that person I didn't want to be. So you ended up staying together at this point, but from here you wrote me about blame shifting or we recently did this episode about circular conversations and your ex, he'd use tactics that we mentioned on that episode when it came to circular conversations 
where he would attack and dissect the language that you would use and use it against you. So walk us through this point, because I know it's something that you felt was important for people to hear. And so the double standards always played played a part here, because if I caught him in a lie and talked to him about it, he would say, well, that's not as bad as how you lie. And I'm thinking, I... I'm certainly not lying, but he was referring to the way that I tell stories. Oh, I've been in traffic for forever or, oh man, that workout made me sore for months or days or whatever it was. He was, he had such a big problem with how I would tell stories and considered that to be just as awful of a lie as what I would bring up with the issues that I had with him. You know, again, it's just it's just no winning. And that's how I kind of thought in my head was I had to score up these wins in order to get back on his good side. I wanted him to like me. I wanted to be treated like the girlfriend he says he has. OK, so I had to look for other things to kind of build up my self-confidence, um, which I guess was probably one of the healthier things that I did. And I was doing really well in school. I mean, I made the president's honors list. I was getting 4.0. I was getting more scholarships and opportunities and my professors wanted me to help them with courses because they appreciated my work and my writing and I felt really good about that and I get a call from my little brother and he was saying you know hey dad's dad's he's dad is telling me that his stomach's hurting I'm thinking, why is my brother calling me about a stomach ache? But okay, you know, uh, we'll we'll figure it out. And I'm trying to keep him calm, and I just get a little bit more information. And with that, I'm, you know, with how much pain he's in, I'm thinking, okay, well, can you go? Can you take him to the hospital? And he was like, yeah, you know, I'll do that. And I said, I'll figure it out when he gets there. You know, I'm the beneficiary and the medical power of attorney, so they're going to call me as soon as he gets admitted. So don't worry about it. There's nothing that you need to do except drop him off. And so the doctors do a workup, they get him his levels back to where they need to be. Um, I call my dad, we have a great conversation, we plan a lunch day, and I'm coordinating when I'm going to pick him up. The nurses are saying, you know, he's going to be discharged. And they keep him overnight one more time, and I get a call from the doctor this time the next morning, and the doctor's telling me, um, you know, why aren't, why aren't you here? I'm like, well, I've, I'm coordinating pickup. They said I could come pick him up at two. He goes, no, 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 not pickup. You know, don't you realize how, you know, what kind of state your your father's in? I'm thinking like the doctor's almost mad at me. So I was kind of caught off guard a little bit. He was like, you need to, you know, have you made any arrangements? I'm thinking arrangements. I was, what? And he was saying, yeah, hospice arrangements. You know, your your dad's gone into kidney and liver failure. I'm thinking I was just on the phone with him last night. We had planned a lunch. You know, we said we had a great conversation and exchanged pictures and caught up. I I couldn't believe the words that I was hearing. You know, I I put on the manager hat or whatever you want to call it and I get to the hospital and I sign all the papers and do what I need to do and get him transferred to hospice. And my dad had passed away you know, 10 minutes into arriving at hospice. I mean, this all happened so fast. I couldn't believe it. And of course, I get this notification as soon as I walk in the door. And 
I get looked at by him asking me, you know, what, what's going on. And I said, well, my dad is gone. He's gone. Like, well, what do you mean he's gone? I was like, he's, he's gone. He's like, oh man, that sucks. (laughs) I'm thinking that sucks. What? But I'm so frozen at this point. I'm just like, whatever. I don't have time to deal with this guy. That's not going to comfort me. I know he's not going to comfort me. I don't expect him to. And I just, I just kind of sit there and I'm thinking about all the conversations I'm about to need to have with my siblings and, you know, what comes with after you lose somebody like that and the role that you play in their life. Right. So I was emotionally dead and I honestly felt like my life was just a shit show and all the efforts up until this point were meaningless I didn't understand why I was trying so hard nothing was working everything was failing I have to go and call my dying mother and tell her that her husband died and she may or may not even understand with how her mind is is going up up at this point too so it's just and I have no guidance, right? I have no extended family. I don't have anybody to call to say, what do I do? You know? So I'm coordinating all these things. We're planning the service. Um, throughout the week, there's different things, of course, that you have to do to get that done. Um, I'm telling him the service is on Sunday. He knows there's announcements everywhere that I had printed and created. So it's pretty obvious, you know, when the funeral is. But he asks me, um, you know, what, what are your plans on Sunday? like two days before the service was planned. And I'm thinking, what do you mean? What are, what are my plans? Um, I was, that's my, that's my dad's funeral. He was like, Oh, I I, I know, I know. I just thought it wasn't going to last all day. So maybe you want to, you know, hang out or, you know, I can, I can stay and watch the dog. It was, it was just very obvious. He didn't want to be a part of it. Um, and I'm glad that he wasn't. And a few weeks after my dad dies, my mom dies. And I have just really not a whole lot of control over my emotions at this point. I mean, my anxiety was all consuming. Um, There was no place that felt peaceful or safe. Um, The mornings and the evenings were really hard for me. And those were the times that I was around him most of the time. So I, I couldn't rely on him for a lot of things. And so the crying again started triggering him to get angry. I still don't understand why that made him so angry, but all of these escalations happened at a point when I reached a level of like a heightened emotional state. So my mom didn't want a service. So, you know, we, we got her cremated and that was, that was it. That was, those were her wishes. So week after, you know, I'm kind of waking up, I hear a song or I hear something that reminds me of my mom and I wake up a little sad because I'm missing my mom. And I thought I was crying silently like I was used to doing, but apparently I wasn't. And he got frustrated because he woke up to me crying. And and I just hear him like slam his hand on the bed. And he's like, oh my God, are you still crying about your mom? It's not like she died yesterday. And I'm just like, I'm completely separated, dissociative, whatever you want to call it. I had, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to feel. I didn't respond. 
I didn't recognize myself. I didn't know what life was. I just was like, where am I? You know, I mean, I was that pulled apart from what was happening and couldn't deal with normal day-to-day things. Maybe it was stressful seeing me like that. I have no idea, but it seemed the more that happened, the farther he kind of pushed away and the meaner he got. I just, I couldn't go through one more loss as much as I, at this point, knew that it was the right thing to do to leave. I felt like I wasn't in a position to be able to go through that. I wasn't equipped. I felt like if I left and dealt with all the things that came with trying to leave and I wouldn't have been able to survive that. So I had to stay in a situation because I at least was more familiar with that than what came with the unknown of leaving him. But with that, because I was so dissociative, I I started reacting back to his anger a little bit more vehemently than I used to. I was angry back. I would yell back. I was doing these. I mean, I didn't recognize myself anyway. So what, what, what did it matter if I was being this person, you know, whoever that person was, but I turned into what I saw as a nasty, horrible person. I hope I never get to meet again. But with that, of course, that escalates his anger and the fights become more animated and slamming things and breaking things. And I would threaten to leave all the time. And I would just say, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving. Can't take this anymore. Um, and he did his famous thing where he would block doorways or hide my wallet or hide certain things so that I wouldn't be able to leave. Or if I did leave, I didn't have something that would allow me to do whatever I need to do, like pay for things if he had my wallet. And I felt that, okay, if this continues, something really bad's going to happen. I don't know what this is, but it's, it's not good. And now I'm stuck in it and I'm going to have to just kind of put some armor on here because I need to prepare for an outburst that could potentially, you know, come with physical abuse. I mean, that's where I, I felt it was heading. No doubt about it. There was one argument that happened around, um, I was, I had my mom's ashes and I was, I was sitting with her. It was a really, I mean, pretty sad moment. Um, there was an envelope that I didn't realize was on top that I dropped on the floor and her rings that she was wearing at the time she was cremated fell out. You know, I just, I got upset. And so when I'm calling him saying, you know, I really just want you to be here. I just need somebody to hold my hand. Um, leaving all these kinds of messages that probably sound really on, you know, from his perspective, pretty crazy. Um, not getting that response, being at a at a point that low, I was like, okay, I really have to leave this time. This time I'm really leaving. And he comes home and sees that I'm packing and starts getting upset. And he's blocking doorways. And I had the suitcase almost ready and I tucked it underneath, you know, his, his arm that was blocking the doorway. And then I try to maneuver right after my suitcase and get underneath him to try to get out. And I elbowed him, not intentionally, but I I elbowed him. And I don't know what switch went off. But it was like, I had just signed some kind of thing saying he had full permission to do whatever he wanted. And that was exactly the moment I was anticipating. 
right? I mean, that, that elbow meant, you know, it was my fault. And now he had to just defend himself because I was somehow physically threatening by accidentally elbowing him. So he handled me to the kitchen floor and I'm pinned to the floor and he screams in my face. I can't even see his face. He's just, he's so close. He's spitting on me. And he said, if you ever touch me like that again, I will fucking mess you up. And, you know, without getting into too many detail, I obviously wasn't able to leave that night. Uh, I didn't even cry. I thought I was pretty numb already, but yeah, I, I didn't feel alive. I felt like I was just existing and there was, there was just no way out. Um, when things calmed down, I, I begged for us to go to therapy. I said, you know, this has reached a point where, you know, I don't think either one of us want to be here. You know, if we're saying we're committed to each other, we have to start putting in some work. You know, I was, I was using we a lot, just, I wasn't putting any blame on anybody. I just said, look, obviously this is not good for either one of us. Right. Uh, it took a lot of convincing, especially since anytime I brought up the word therapy, he would say that, well, I don't understand why I would need therapy because I didn't have any of these problems until you came along. So I think maybe you get some therapy and then our problems will go away. Um, so I found a couple's counselor. There was a man and a woman. I thought it'd be good for him to have that male perspective. Um, we were going to start that in a couple weeks. We kept our distance. We were really just kind of civil with each other. Not really. I stopped cooking. I stopped really kind of doing a lot of stuff around the house. We were kind of just roommates at that point, but roommates that couldn't leave each other. The way I explained why we needed therapy was... I brought up my past relationships and how healthy they were and the things that came from those relationships. I said they were built on trust. We were, we went out and did things. We genuinely loved each other. I never had to worry about judgment. So I'm just trying to say like, those are the things that make a healthy relationship and we don't have those things right now. And then he completely discredited those relationships I had. And he said, I don't know, you know, what world you were living in, but there's no relationship that exists like that. You know, relationships aren't like the movies, is what he would say. Uh, they must have been really good at lying to you because they, I know that they were lying and cheating and there was just nothing real about that. You know, you just didn't nag them as much as you nagged me. I, I'm the only one that's speaking up and telling you the truth. And I just, I'm like, okay, you know, I give up. You know, forget therapy. This is, this is just, this is not happening. I, I don't want to believe that those wonderful times in my life that I have very few of were lies. And if I stayed there long enough, I knew he was probably going to make me believe those. So I said I was leaving. I walk over to him. I am crying because I'm sad. Um, I'm not angry. I just said, you know, sucks that this can't work out. And I'm hugging him and he's not hugging me back and I'm a little bit frustrated and I put my hands on his chest and I kind of just, I tap his chest with my hands. Again, that triggered something with him. Again, I, I, I didn't think I had done anything wrong. It wasn't me intentionally trying to hurt him in any sort of way. 
he gets up in my ear and said, what did I tell you was going to happen? Touch me again, do it. Touch me again. And I'm like, what? Honestly, like what, what, what is happening? And then I kind of just was like, I was so fed up. I was like, really, this is, this is really what you want to do, you know? And so I did it again and I did it just to kind of prove a point. Cause I was like, really, if you're going to react to this, yeah, sure. I'll do it again. Looking back probably wasn't something I should have done, but I did it. And he holds up his fist and winds it up almost looks, I don't know where this fist is going. And just with all of his strength, I mean, you know, when somebody's holding back, he did not hold back at all. This is a guy that goes to the gym and is also very angry. So he punched the hell out of me and I am beyond hysterical. I take my dog. I don't even know if I packed any underwear. I grabbed like just a pile of probably dirty laundry and put it by the door. And I walk to the bathroom, shut the door, lock it. And I'm calling my sister and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not going to be able to get out of this by myself. And if I have to suck up my pride and call my sister and she has to find out that I've been living, you know, alive for the past two years, at least it gets me out of here. So I called her. I'm hysterical on the phone. I'm not able to even talk. She lives about an hour from me normally, but she happened to be 10 minutes away, thankfully. And I didn't even get words out. And she just goes, I'm on my way. You're going to be okay. And, And hangs up. And she shows up, walks upstairs. I meet her. Um, she notices the welt that I have brewing from what happened. She doesn't ask about it. And she just walks upstairs and there he is sitting at his computer with his headphones on watching a YouTube video. Like nothing had ever happened. You know, there's nothing wrong here. It's just, I'm just at my computer. I'm just hanging out. He doesn't acknowledge anybody. Uh, we pack and leave and I end up going to live with my sister for a little while. I guess that's, that's what it took for me to, to make that change. Cause it was not only leaving him, it was also revealing my identity. Wasn't this big, strong, fix it, reliable person who has their life put together and their siblings can count on and didn't just experience, you know, dead parents. And now they have to deal with this sister that's, you know, going through this hard time. And I didn't want that, but I had to accept the fact that until I accepted my reality for what it really was, nothing was going to change. I had to admit it. I had to admit it to somebody, even if it wasn't myself yet. Right. So um, I'm living with my sister for a little while we still have that therapist appointment and he's not texting me or calling me. It's been about a month. I don't know what he's doing where he is. I'm still paying rent. You know, he's not in any sort of horrible financial situation. And I end up 
joining the therapy session because I thought, well, he won't be here, but at least I'll get something out of it. And in he pops into the therapy session, which was really shocking. And we get through that. And the therapist calls me privately after the therapist session was done and says, are you safe? Thinking, yeah, it's all good. We didn't talk about any, we didn't get granular with the story in terms of what was happening in the relationship. We just said, you know, why we're here and what our goals were. So I was a little confused at that question. And he said, well, I bring this up because I've been doing this for many, many years. Um, the way he's talking and the things that he's saying is indicative of somebody who is abusive. If he's not abusive now, he's kind of on the way to be. So I just wanted to make sure that, you know, you were safe. And I'm, I'm thinking, how does somebody who just talked to me for 30 minutes figure it out that fast with no context or proof. And I mean, it was, it was mind blowing. And he told me about the word narcissist for the first time. You know, he's got narcissistic tendencies and this, that, and the other, which was a word that never really held a lot of weight before. Everybody calls everybody a narcissist. You know, I just didn't mean anything to me. And he told me to, you know, just do some research, see if I identified with any of those things. And I looked it up and it was like, holy crap. I mean, textbook, you could check everything off that list. And I'm thinking, really? That's when I, when I realized that the effects that came from that with my health issues and how left out these men and women are from these relationships. And some of them end up, you know, with without a house because they have to leave with nothing or they have kids. And I was just, it put everything into perspective in terms of like, I, I need to be really smart about my next moves here. Right. Because just because he showed up to that therapy session doesn't mean that, um, I need to jump back into this relationship again. I couldn't live with my sister forever, but I needed to figure something out. Um, so I make it pretty clear that I'm not coming back. I told him I wasn't going to put any financial burdens on him. I'll still pay my share of the rent. I wanted no issues, right? So I I made sure that there was no way he was going to come back to bite me. Um, He said, I must have some kind of man that I've been seeing this entire time. And then all these accusations and things like that started coming up. and. I was able to brush them off. Now his words kind of started feeling like I was able to put a definition behind all the things that were happening now that I knew what this narcissistic abuser, malignant narcissist, whatever you want to, you know, whatever box you want to put him in. It, it had meaning. I wasn't crazy. It was, this is what was happening. So I packaged up this awesome thing. I said, let me know when you get the stuff out of the storage unit. Or I'll have, I'll have your stuff delivered to you, you know, whatever you want. But by this date, like, it's done. We're separated. It's uh, permanently. And I didn't think he had anything to argue about with that. And I finally go and move out all my stuff. All the furniture and everything is mine. 
the only thing that's left in this apartment that he's living in are his clothes through no fault of my own, but, um, and I end up leaving and I eliminated any temptation. I blocked his number. That was really it. So how have you been doing in the aftermath? I was so used to being inside and not doing anything that I was isolating, even though I was finally in a safe place to not need to isolate as much anymore. Um, I was hearing his voice in everything that I was doing, you know, with how I was doing my makeup. I would question, did I put too much makeup on today? I would hear his voice when I would load the dishwasher. It still felt like he was over my shoulder. And even still today, this is all still very recent. I haven't really settled back into what my life looks like now because I'm dealing with both the loss of that relationship and everything that kind of stained who I was, you know, from that. And then I also am mourning the loss of being the caretaker because my siblings are old enough and don't need me anymore. Now they had to take care of me for a little while, which was horrifying. <laughs> and my parents are gone. They don't need me taking care of them. I am trying to find myself, really myself, not myself that I want everybody to see. I want to know who I am when I'm not giving everything. Who am I just sitting here right now talking to you? You know? Um, and that's, it's hard, it's hard to even talk about. I don't even know how to quantify it. I mean, I just, it, it's hard to be 30 years old and, and feel like I, now I'm finding myself. This is kind of, you know, isn't it a, a little late for that? But um, I just try to take every little piece of progress I can. Um, but yeah, you know, I think talking about this for the first time, I was just telling you, this is the first time I've gotten through telling my story to anybody, to myself, to admitting the mistakes that I made. And I really want to own those, those things. And I, I think in doing that, I'm going to start to see more, more progress from there. And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would it be? I think I would say it's okay to admit that you're tired sometimes and that you're exhausted. Even if you're the president of the United States, I think you're allowed to feel tired sometimes and to own that. I think it's okay to call your little sister or call your best friend. I think it's okay to realize that what you thought was going to produce a beautiful life because you did everything right and did everybody proud and it not work out. I think there's, there's other things at play in life that you can't control that are just going to happen. Um, it's hard to find people that you relate to, but that doesn't mean you're alone and 
it's hard for me to think I can even give words of advice. I feel like such a hypocrite. Um, there's still so much shame in all of this because I was supposed to be the one person that didn't get wrapped up in stuff like this, you know? And maybe those are the exact words of wisdom everyone needs to hear, really. You know, that it's a struggle and that many survivors like you are very hard on yourself and that everyone who has just heard you tell your story, they want you to be gentle with yourself because you deserve it. They deserve it too. So I think those were great words of wisdom. And I think everyone is giving you a big hug and thanking you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Brandon. And thank you for all the work that you do too. So this, this is so important. And I hope that it just continues to reach people and turn on all those light bulbs that we all need um, turned on for us sometimes. So thank you very much. Well, Austin, I really want to thank you once again for being a guest on our show. And if you want to be a guest like Austin was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also, at our website, we have our very own support group. So if you need support, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Support Group. When you click on that, it takes you to our very own safe social network. There, you will find that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on and get the validation that you need. And you can give validation to other survivors just like yourself. So if you need support, please do join our support group at NarcissistApocalypse.com today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. And they have every phone number, email address, and website address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small your town is. DomesticShelters.org has it there. So please do visit them today. And that is it for today's show. So for myself, And Austin, we hope you have a good night.